Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 11th, 2019. This is episode 2468 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is Thursday. That means it is time for a listener call show. We've had a pretty big break in listener call shows. Um, I went to kind of an alternating thing of doing a listener call show every other week to kind of just put some new variety back into the show, uh, do some more of the Just Jack shows, trying to throw back a little bit to the original podcast, and we did it for like the first year and a half. Uh, there was really nothing but Just Jack shows. There was no interviews or anything, uh, and I, I like to try to tie back into our roots from time to time. Um, but I want to answer your calls, too. Then I took a vacation, and then we had a 4th of July weekend, so I just got a buttload of calls. I got eight of them queued up for you today. I'm probably going to do a listener call show again next week and then go back to alternating to try to catch up on some of this backlog that we've created. Here's what I, I got for you today. We got considerations for firefighter access to rural properties. This is actually incredibly important. Uh, we have why groups that support liberty seldom reach consensus, and the converse is that people that are, the more they are for tyranny, the more they are for interfering with other people's lives, the more they agree. It seems like a or it seems like a counterintuitive, but it's really not. We'll talk about that. Uh, we have a question on 5G technology, what it might mean for rural internet access, and I think why, I think it's being oversold for rural communities. And while I, I think 5G is going to revolutionize the world, and I think the the tin hattery around it going to give everybody brain cancer or whatever is overdone, I, I do think that people maybe don't understand what it's going to take to make 5G work and what really makes 5G capable of changing the world. It's not about just how much bandwidth or throughput you can get and why it might not be for everybody the best solution and why I think a lot of people in rural communities might have it kind of go around them would be a way to look at it, and why I think it's being used as an excuse to not do rural Internet development right now. That's, and we'll get to all that when we get there. I have a, a call that came in where a guy invited me to his wedding, which is long since passed, and I was on vacation during it. Um, I'm going to cut off the part where he does that and gives details about the wedding location, but I'm going to play the first part of it because... It's going to lead me into a segment on getting what you want in life and why working for it now in many instances, not all, but in many instances, is a much better decision than putting it off until later. Uh, next, when is the right time to call the cops? I know some of you are screaming, never! I'll tell you when I did uh, recently and why I would do it again with no qualms whatsoever uh, because I think it was the right decision at the time. And there really wasn't anybody else to call, and I really didn't control whether the cops or the cops and EMS or EMS without the cops would come. I really don't know who came in the end. Uh, but I'll talk about times where it does make sense. Uh, question on hunting with the 357 Magnum, and this is one of those instances where the person says, well, does it? And I said, absolutely. And then the next word that came out of his mouth made me add, not. It's pretty cool, and we'll talk about one of my favorite rounds in the world, the 357 Magnum. We'll talk about choosing vegetation, aquatic vegetation, for a new pond. And um, we'll talk about a concept in government 
called Use It or Lose It and how much money it really costs us. And how we could save $100 billion or more, I would guess, off the top of my head, probably hundreds of billions of dollars a year, um, if we got rid of this policy, this insane policy. The person calling in is a military veteran, spent 17 years in the military. Um, I know exactly where he's coming from. I'll tell you what it was like for me as a young man finding out about this ludicrous idea back when I was in the military. Uh, myself, but I'll tell you that it's not limited to the military. We'll we'll talk about that, and if you have any faith left in government, hopefully by the end of today, the vampire that it is, I will stake it deeply in the heart, and you'll let go of that faith. As has become the tradition, we have no commercials on uh, Thursday and Friday shows, so we'll jump right into it, but I will remind you, we are storming up to episode 2500. We are what, uh, 32 episodes away from episode 2500. I'd love to have you be part of it. It'll be sometime in September. To do that, you just call the jerk line at 877-644-1345. Somebody said it sounds like a bad porno line, the jerk line. It's not. It's just a place where you leave me a message and say, hey, Jack, you jerk, because of you and TSP or because of you and this subcommunity, because of you and things like uh, you know the Facebook group or because of you and things like the Zello channel or whatever, and whatever uh, springboarded off of TSP that has impacted your life for the better, call in and tell me about it for episode 2500, but do it in a fun way and telling me why I'm such a jerk. And uh, it'll be fun. If you don't really want to, I, I have a lot lower response to this than I thought I would. And I think it's because of the jerk thing. If you don't want to say I'm a jerk, you don't have to. You, 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 if that'll get you to call in. Next up, I've been trying to kind of canonize a daily segment that's scheduled. So instead of having the same segment every day, we did the history segment for several years uh, and things like that. Uh, having a segment per day that is something unique and different that can add variety to the show. And I haven't really scheduled it yet, but one of the things that I've been thinking of adding and having a day for it, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, and hopefully by next week I'll have this formalized and get some stuff scheduled out, but like the YouTube channels of the day, stuff like that, I want to do a quote of the week. Every week I want to give you a, a quote from some person in history, maybe some well-known person like today, maybe some obscure person that never even said anything intelligent except about one thing. You know, even even out of the mouths of fools sometimes come wisdom, all right? As I just, I just make a quote up, I don't know. Somebody probably said that before. Anyway, um, this is from someone that is well-known, a, a great poet from the 1800s, his name, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the quote of the week this week is, Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. There's incredible wisdom in that you know robert frost another uh, poet that i've always loved said to take the road less traveled by and that would make the difference emerson says screw the path go make one and i think there is a place both for walking on the predetermined paths in life but then knowing where to get off and where to go somewhere else and i've done a lot of hiking in my life and i've always found that when you're following a trail it's important to know how to get back onto it so you can get home and not die. But it's the little segues off to the side here and there where you find the truly special places. And I think that's a metaphor for life. That there is a, a way to win. There are what I call laws of life by which we should all follow. Um, but, but, there are times to decide that there's something that you want to do 
that everybody tells you can't be done, or maybe somebody can do it but not you, and the only way you're going to find out is pull the machete out and start hacking at some trees and make your own path. Just thought of the week there. All right, so we're going to start out. First call today uh, is on firefighter access to rural properties. And this is something I probably should have talked about before. It is something that I'll relate some personal experiences on uh, for you guys uh, from last year as well, uh, after we listen to this uh, call that uh, I think is incredibly valuable. It's probably going to save somebody's ass long term. So listen carefully. Hi, Jack. I would like to pass on some advice we were recently given regarding rural properties and fire. If your property is fenced and gated, check with your local fire department to make sure your gates and roadways are wide enough for their trucks to get through, especially if your property is on the larger side. Details. We are in the beginning stages of developing our farm and homestead on a 12-acre piece of property here in southern Arizona. It was previously occupied, and we are having to clear off the remains of some old pre-existing structures. Some of it has to be hauled off to landfill, but much of it is old wood that can be safely burned. When our local equivalent to a fire chief visited the property to inspect the site and issue our burn permits, he made two very useful suggestions. First, he suggested we replace our current 10-foot-wide gate with something 15 feet or wider. Being off of a narrow country road with irrigation ditches on either side of it, he said neither of their trucks would be able to get onto our property through the current entry. He also suggested we keep the width and length of their trucks in mind when we are putting in driving access around the property. As the bulk of our acreage is quite a ways off of the road, that makes a lot of sense. While doing everything you can to keep fires from happening in the first place is definitely preferable, summertime fire season will soon be upon us, at least here in this area, and we would hate to lose part or all of our property just because our local firefighters couldn't get their equipment deep enough into the property to safely fight a fire. Hope that helps out some other folks here in the community, and thanks for the show. Have a great one. Thanks, Shauna and Tucson. So all I can do during that call is just nod my head uh, to the point where I feel like I'm going to give myself a headache in agreement. Um, a couple things I've seen reinforcing this. When we lived in Arkansas for a few years, there were uh, while we were living there, there was a fire. And while we owned the property there, there were two others because, well, there was a guy near the bottom of the mountain. After the third fire, he stopped burning stuff because people threatened to bulldoze his house. And I'll leave it at that. But the gentleman with the bulldozer uh, saved all of our properties all three occasions uh, by getting in and pushing fire breaks and then actually by uh, creating access on demand in some instances for uh, fire response teams uh, that came out there and did a great job of, uh, of preventing um, a, a forest fire from becoming a national news forest fire. And so very much the more rural, uh, the more narrow the roads, the more rugged the terrain, the more you should think about the need to allow for access. Right here, um, you know, I have a three-acre property. If they had to, they can run hoses or something like that uh, to fight a structure fire especially. But forest fires, you know, what you need to do is stop the advance, uh, behind me is a neighbor who owns about six acres that's also fenced. There's a flat, level road back to his property. Um, uh, uh, last year, right around this time of year, we had had a lot less rain. It had been like two months without rain. He has some young guy living with him now that's, um, I really don't know what, what the deal is, but uh, he's 
renting a room or something. Uh, guy's out of the military in his early 20s and not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, they had a huge pile of uh, brush that they, that, you know, I guess he's working uh, back there for him as well and clearing some stuff up. They had a huge pile of brush, and uh, the genius gets the idea that he's going to set it on fire and burn it. He does at least bring a garden hose out with him, but he he's incapable of actually starting a fire and getting this pile of brush on fire, so he gives up. Uh, my wife and I opened the back door uh, about 6 o'clock in the evening that night, and apparently he was better at making fire than he thought, and some ember or coal in there eventually caught the brush pile, and then it began to rapidly spread. Without our hero standing by with his little trusty garden hose, um, fire had begun to spread like, well, fire. Uh, I pieced together like a bunch of hoses and had a, I, mean, I only have so much water pressure from my well, but at least I was spraying the fire that was trying to come to get my property. And because it was grass, it was fairly easy to control as it got there. My wife called uh, fire department. Several other people had as well. Uh, we rapidly heard the fire trucks coming and uh, our hero was out grinning like a dumbass. And he said, yeah, the fire trucks are. I'm like, you have a fence. Go let them in. He goes, uh, I said, Get, just stop laughing and go let them in. So he let them in, and they had two vehicles driving around and driving back into the woods as best they could and basically put out, fought the, the fire from its perimeter inward to gain control of it, and they were able to do that. I would estimate, had that taken another 10 minutes, that it, those of you that have been here you know I have a fairly large, probably good 10 acres of wooded, uh, property behind me, I would say a good 10 to 20% of the trees are dead from re repeated droughts over the years, and a lot of those trees are downed, and then there was a lot of underbrush that was very dry. I'd say it would have taken another 10 to 15 minutes, and we would have had a fully involved at least 10-acre uh, forest fire. There are a tremendous number of homes along the edge of that uh, woodland uh, going around the back side uh, of the neighborhood and there would have been loss of, of significant loss of property if not life had those guys not got there now all that said his his gate is wide the area is big for turning they brought in uh, two you know kind of mid-sized fire trucks and drove around in his field so they were able to do that now what if they weren't what if that 10 minutes hadn't been a, a slower response time? What if it had just been how much longer they needed to gain access? And there really is no access coming in the other way to catch up to the fire. They would have had to basically set up a perimeter and wait on the fire to a large degree. Okay, now let's move it instead of at the or urban rural fringe where I live, let's move it out in the sticks and let's turn that 10 acres into 1,000. you got to think about this. That's why I said I think this call alone. Some person out there is going to hear it, think about it, and change what they're doing because of it. And it's probably going to be a dozens of those. And it's going to be one of them that one day is going to be really glad they did. That's what this show is all about, is helping you make those smart decisions of things that you often overlook. I really appreciate the caller for bringing that to our attention. Thank you so much. Uh, next up, we have a question about liberty as it relates to different political groups like Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians. And uh, something that seems counterintuitive, but it really isn't. Hey, Jack. My name's Ken from the great state of New Hampshire. Something I've noticed after attending various meetings in Concord 
The Democrats here tend to march in lockstep. Whatever one of them wants, the other ones back them up. The Republicans is about a two to three ratio. Two want it, one don't. As for the Libertarians, we can't even agree on who we want to vote for, very much less what we want to do. I don't tell you, man, it really makes me lose faith in our party. Anyways, keep up all the good work. Bye. So I just want to make sure that those that maybe are new to this uh, show would understand that when he says our party, he's talking about our party is in his party and the other people in it. He ain't including me. Uh, I affiliate with no political party, not even libertarians, um, though I do consider myself a pure libertarian, which would make me also an anarchist, voluntarist, agorist, to use the word that makes you most comfortable. And so I have decided to abstain 100% from the political process as a whole. And I don't get involved with politics uh, other than designing my life around all the restrictions that these people make for me. I will say this, though. There is a propensity as you move on the political spectrum. Let's, let's go ahead and use Democrat, and we might as well call them socialists at this point, to Republican, which we might as well call socialist light, to libertarian, which we might call minarchist socialist, uh, to people that actually believe in complete and total liberty and freedom, uh, which would be total minarchism at, at, at a maximum, right? So it, it, there are people, I think, that really do believe in true liberty, uh, complete and total pure liberty that still can't get over the fact that we could actually have that without a government, and therefore they are for something along the lines of the government can take care of like the military, maraudes, uh, and uh, settling civil disputes and putting people into a place like a jail uh, should they actually take property from someone else or harm someone else. And everything else the government just shouldn't touch. A pure minarchist, I guess. And that used to be me. And, and I realized eventually that sounds great, but that government will always turn into what we have now. But if you give a government one power, it will use the one power to create two and the two powers to create four and so on until you have a bloated corpse of a government. That's always what's going to happen. Though if I could hit a reset button and take us down to that tomorrow, I would. It'd last a few generations, so I'd, I'd go there, just to be clear. But I want to explain why this seems so counterintuitive, but it actually makes perfect sense. You would think that the more libertarian or more liberty-oriented uh, a group is, let's even just use Democrats and Republicans. Republicans stamp on liberty all the time, all the time. The Democrats do it more. I, I'll, I'll give you that, right? I'm not siding with either one. I'm just saying Democrats do it more. All right. You would think the more a person moved toward the side of liberty, the more that group of people would agree. You would be wrong. And not only can we see it by just looking at like how much libertarians argue with each other compared to Democrats. right? Um, you can just look at it in voting uh, results. You can look at it in polling results. You can look at it any way you want to. Well, this is why. And I've, I've been teaching this for 10 years at least. Liberty cannot be defined by one person for another person. Because liberty... We can define the concept as the freedom to pursue your life as you see fit, absent from interference, so long as you don't harm anybody else. But that really doesn't explain what liberty is. To see liberty manifested, you have to look at the person in that environment and what they choose to do with it, what they choose to make their life like, how they choose to live their life. 
the way that they design their life inside that orbit that we would refer to as, as a liberty environment. So what I want from liberty and what you want for, from liberty are completely and totally different. You, you probably don't want to live exactly the way that I live. You want to live your own way. The more we agree about that, the more we're going to disagree about how to get there. And the more a person wants liberty, the more they're going to fail to compromise their principles and being willing to hold their nose and vote for ASCON A, B, C, or D. So what happens every year is whatever party is out of power, or every four years for a presidential election, uh, whatever party is out of power, there's a power grab, and sometimes with an incumbent president uh, who has had two terms and leaves it to the next group, there's a fight as well, and you might have both parties do this. Don't think they all agree. Look at them fighting right now. Look at the left fighting right now over people like Warren and Mayor Pete and Biden, etc. And they are just tearing each other apart. And Kamala Harris says that Joe Biden's a racist, but he's not really a racist. But he kind of is a racist because he talked to racists one time. And he had this policy belief that she actually shares, but she didn't share it with them, so it doesn't apply to her. And she's kind of sort of black, so it doesn't apply to her, so it's his problem. And, and they all fight with each other. And uh, Warren is the, the, the new uh, Bernie, and Bernie is the original Bernie. And I'm not supporting Biden no matter what, and he's a disaster for the party. I'm not Whoever wins, whoever wins to be the head nominee for the mafia party known as the Democrats, all these people that swear to God that I'm going to vote for you, they will, 99% of them, fall in right behind their, their criminal. All the never-Trumpers, there's a few that didn't, but are kind of, I think even a lot of people that still call themselves never-Trumpers, on election day, they went and voted for the guy, or he would not have won. Okay? So all of this bullshit about, well, I'm not voting for him, I'm not voting, as soon as they're down to, it's that person or the lesser of two evils, they coalesce. Because both of them want control over other people. The further you, and this is why it is in general harder for a Republican to win the presidency than it is for a Democrat. Because there's less consensus when you want more freedom. You understand that? That's how simple it is. Think about it the other way. The more you want controlled, the easier it is to gain consensus. Well, we want to control the schools, we want to control uh, the, the stock market, we want to control the banks, we want to control industry, we want to, like, we want gun control. Like, once you go into the mindset of controlling shit, well, then what don't you want to control? And they can just keep, and this is why there's always a march toward totalitarianism as a society grows. And as its technology grows, and as its capability grows, and as the ability to do as little as possible and still be relatively comfortable increases. Because the person that, you know, 25 years ago could lay on their ass in Section 8 housing and get a welfare check and live kind of poor, but live as good as the guy down the road living in a trailer park working his ass off, was happy with that. Well, now they're saying, well, why can't I live as good as the person that works their ass off and worked their ass off even harder, got out of the trailer park and bought a nice house in the suburbs? Why can't I have that? When all these rich people have even more than that. Well, and then the deal is, well, you know, if we took more from the rich people and gave it to you, you would have it. 
Well, it's easy to gain consensus with that. Once they buy into that, well, again, we're back to what don't you want to control. So you will always have, the more a group loves liberty, the more it will disagree with how that liberty should be, which is what leads me to the concept of voluntarism. All relationships, interactions, etc. should be voluntary between people. No one should be able to use force or coercion on anybody except if they're resisting force and coercion. That's it. Now you would think even that could be agreed upon, but then we get people who want to call themselves anarcho-communists. You can't have anarcho-communism. You can have it as an adjective. Communism can be a fine adjective. You guys want to all go together and pull all your resources and do everything and do equal sharing and create a very minimal hierarchy within that. And everybody wants to, you can do all that you want to, and it can be voluntarist, anarchism, or gores. It can be anything you want. But as soon as you want to put it on other people, how are you going to do that? Through force and coercion. Now you're not an anarchist. It's that simple. So that's why I push to the position that I'm in, because the further you move in this position, the more it is inevitable that you realize that any incursion upon any individual's rights is wrong. And the more you realize that the smallest, when people talk about minorities, the smallest minority will always be the individual. What's smaller than one? And the right of that individual to pursue liberty the way that they see fit should be seen as sovereign. And the only way groups that claim to want liberty can ever get there is to make that the, the guiding tenant. And the reason they can't agree is they don't make that the guiding tenant. Each of them decides, I'd want to live this way. So anything that doesn't impede me from living this way is, is, is good enough. That's the same way they sell a tax cut or a tax increase. Well, it's not going to affect you. Oh, okay. And that's how the average person thinks. And you'd like to believe as people move on this spectrum toward more liberty that they break out of that dynamic, but by and large they do not. Let's take another one. Good call. This one on 5G. Hi, Jack. Chris from Northeast Indiana. I'd like to know more about how 5G networks might change rural Internet options. And really, I'd like to understand the details of you know how 5G differs from everything else out there. Uh, I know your combo background should probably help us out here. Thanks for all you do. Well, my, my background in telecom can probably help a bit here, but let's let's be honest about its limitations and uh, the temporal nature of technology. So I was very heavily involved in telecommunications throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, by you know 20, 2008, 2009, uh, when I started this show, I was a, a partner in a company called Syrian Technology, and we built optimization software for wireless carriers, uh, specifically optimizing 3G networks. Well, we're now into 4G networks, and we're heading to 5G. Uh, so there's a lot I don't know about new technology, and I'll try to be honest about my limitations there when I talk about stuff like this. Um, but here's let, let's first understand, I think, the, the reason 5G is such a big deal. Everybody wants to make a big deal about how fast it is from a standpoint of how much bandwidth it can put through how quickly you can stream a movie or how quickly you'd be able to, let's say, uh, download a file or send a file. And that's a big deal. The bigger deal is the latency down to like 0.1 nanoseconds. What's well, latency? Latency is the time between which 
this one device tells this other device what's up, and they understand each other, and they're able to, to agree with that thing. And when you get down to the type of uh, latency, which is almost non-existent, in a fully built-out theoretical, because none of them exist yet, 5G network, it is what's going to enable the true Internet of Things. It's what's going to enable cars to drive themselves. Because instead of only relying on what the car can see, all the cars will be able to talk to each other and develop consensus in nanos, in fractions of nanoseconds about not just where to go, where not to go, but how to alter tra traffic patterns. I think that traffic jams in, in 20 years will hardly exist. You may, it may take longer to get somewhere, but there won't be traffic sitting still. Vehicles will adjust speed and course based on uh, the total intelligence uh, being disseminated across a network where the cars are not just autonomous, they actually become networked robots. That's what we're headed with. And that's, that is the incredible innovation of, of 5G and the fact that an average user will be able to watch the latest superhero movie or whatever on their phone in, in almost real time is almost a byproduct of that. That's how they'll sell it. That's how they'll get the revenue from the users to develop these other things. But the real earth-shattering, earth-altering concept is the ability of millions of devices to know what all the other devices know at almost the same time. So the bandwidth is there that allows the exchange of the data, but the lack of latency allows the rapid adjustment. Okay? Now, what does it take to do that, though? So right now, if I look out my window of my wife's office, I can look to uh, the, the southwest of my property, and just a little ways away is a great big tower. It's a cell tower, and we all know what they look like. And that's the only tower that you can see from my property. And if you climbed up on the roof, it's real hard to even find another cell phone tower. It covers a pretty big area, and we refer to that area as a cell. Uh, that's why they call them cell phones. And then that area is actually a sphere, is the way to think of it. And sometimes we don't get that good uh, of signal that you would think, because we can see it's right there, because as that signal comes out from that tower, it comes out in a fairly uniform way, and actually like right under the tower, the signal's pretty low because that signal has to get down to the ground on an angle. It, 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 there's a, a, a shadow, a signal shadow uh, within that cone. And they've done some things to make that less uh, effective. They've also done things with some towers to push signal more in one direction or the other. They did a lot of this in the beginning of build-outs. Uh, one of the most notorious for it was T-Mobile uh, building these uh, towers along the interstate system and funneling your... How, you can only push so much. There's only so much... Uh, signal strength. So instead of broadcasting it in a sphere, they broadcast it directionally down the highway, and that let them have really great coverage for people on the road, which early on was really good, but not so great coverage once on a small town you got off it. So all of that's at play in this. But the key is that one tower covers a pretty big area. Well, when we move to 5G, at least where we're at now, the number of those transmitters and, and receiving towers has got to go up a great deal. You have to put a lot more of them in. The good news is individually they cost a lot less, and they don't have to be anywhere near as big. 
but you need a lot more of them. So my concern for rural Internet is this is all a, a big promise so the local governments, the state governments, so carriers can all say, that ah, 5G's coming, there's no reason to put millions of dollars into this community. Okay, well, how many 5G towers are they going to put in to a place where it's a really low number of people that they can sell service to? And where are they going to put them? And where are these towers going to get their power from? You know, when we're talking about, you know, small towns with, you know, 20,000 people, that's one thing. But when we're talking about true rural access where there's, you know, 40 families that live on this, you know, 20 miles of road, I, I, I don't see it getting there. And not anytime soon. I see something like a WiMAX, which is a technology that had so much potential that just never got deployed, a WiMAX 5G hybrid getting these people better than they have now, getting them actually some sort of high-speed Internet. But, but I, don't, I don't see us getting to a point where those communities get the true promise of 5G delivered to their device. I could be wrong, but I think they get it last. The people in most need are going to get it last. All the 5G projects are being rolled out in major top-tier markets. You know, L.A. and Atlanta, New York. I mean, that's that's where Chicago. That's where they're going to go first. And, and this the, the rural community with lower density is always going to come last. So that's, I think, where we're at. I do think it will change the world, but not, again, so much because what you can do with your iPhone, but what 10,000 iPhones can collectively do together, which brings up the big scary part. What this will enable from a surveillance state is absolutely frightening. Um, I think all of these people flipping out about it's going to give you brain cancer or whatever. Listen, that's what they said about microwave ovens. That's what they said about wireless networks. That's what they said. Every single thing that's ever transmitted a, 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 a single bit of data across open space has been claimed that it's going to melt brains and kill everybody. And there's and what. What the watchdog organizations have said is, well, it, it hasn't been fully tested yet. There, there theoretically could be a problem. So then the, the conspiracy theorists wrap the foil tied around their head and scream, see, see, they said it's going to cause a problem. No, that's not what they All the scientists agree. Well, I don't believe that all scientists agree about just about anything anyway. And that consensus has never been a strong argument to me without data to go behind the consensus. From any scientific principle, and if you if you watch some of Joe Rogan's uh, podcasts uh, on YouTube with some of these really great scientists that he has on that talk about cataclysmic events and the hard data behind it and the way traditional science reacts, you'll realize scientific consensus is for sale. Okay, so that's not a thing either, and it doesn't even exist here. So I think if you're really like reading these articles and freaked out, and it's going to, it's it, I can't say there will be no implications whatsoever, but the doomsday forecasts from it there, I think, are bullshit. They said that about 1G. They said it about 2G. They said it about 3G. They said it about 4G. They said it about LTE. They said it about everything. That doesn't mean they're wrong. It means they have a track record of being wrong. They, again, they said it about microwave ovens. They said it When television first came out, they said the same kind of crap. All these signals are going through there. They said it about Marconi's damn radio, just not as crazy as they do today. People are afraid of radio waves. 
And if you point out, there's radio waves everywhere anyway, even if we're not the ones doing the transmission at specific frequencies where we can understand them. They already exist. Radiation. It's radiation from a damn banana, folks. Don't worry about that, but you better keep an eye on what the government's going to do with this because what we're literally moving to is a point where they'll be able to track every single person where you are 24 hours a day and to a large degree what you're doing. And then how much of that is just straight-up government surveillance, but how much of that becomes information for sale to companies in deciding how they want to do business with you? Well, Mr. Smith... It looks like you stop at this liquor store three days a week. Your health insurance has got to go up. And that's just the beginning. And that is my real fear. And it, it, the, the reason, so then why are you not opposed to 5G? Number one, 5G is going to happen whether I'm opposed to it or not. You can scream, you can yell, you can post articles on crazy uh, websites or valid ones. It's still coming. And two, if it wasn't 5G, it'd be something called something else and it'd be something else. There's always the danger of the surveillance state. So the key, I think, is going to be, as, as this goes forward, is determining exactly how to protect your privacy as best you can in a world of almost complete and total surveillance. That That's my real concern there. And, again, my concern for rural communities, you're still going to be at the end. And so if there are initiatives, because it's all stolen money anyway, and they're going to do something with it, And, and, and I would rather have you have good Internet access than uh, another organization designed to tell your neighbor they can't plant a tree or some stupid shit. So um, just when you get that objective, well, 5G's coming. It's not coming anytime soon for you. I really don't believe that it is. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. This one, an interesting call and a happy call and a somewhat sad-sounding call at the same time. Hey, Jack. Aaron from upstate New York here. Well, I guess actually Brooklyn, New York now. I'm getting married in 11 days. But we're getting married in 11 days, by the way. And it's very exciting and awesome. Yet I have the honor of living in Brooklyn where there's no freaking parking anywhere. Anyway, my fiance, spending time with her and your voice in my head via Bluetooth are the only things keeping me sane in this pit of despair. Your calm, happy, joyful voice talking about awesome things and topics and all sorts of exciting things that I hope to enact in my life sooner rather than later are keeping me sane here. And I want you to know that I really, really appreciate what you do. So a after that, he went on to invite me to this wedding. And, of course, I have to... Uh, very late uh, decline. Uh, I was actually laying on a beach during pretty much that entire time. Um, if I had been in New York, I think I might have shown up just to say hello and to wish y'all well. Here's my concern when I listen to a call like this. I, I love hearing that what we do here gives you hope. I love hearing that it keeps you going. I love hearing that it's something that you share with the person you want to share the rest of your life with. I don't like the pain I hear. I don't like the, and I could be totally wrong about this, but what I hear is the future will be better, but for now I am stuck. And I am resigned to being stuck. It's the second part, the resigned to it, that I'm hearing. And I want this message for everybody. You should absolutely Be th If you feel trapped in a place or a spot in your life 
you should be the pig, not the cow. I've talked about this before, but cows like to be domesticated. Cows like to be controlled. For the love of God, cows don't even mind being milked. And you can use very sparingly uh, fencing, keep cattle in a place. And once cattle kind of test fencing a few times, the fencing can literally rot away and they still won't leave if they're the old cows that remember the fence being there. The pig can be trained to a hot wire, and it's a good thing to do where they don't want to get shocked, but sooner or later that pig will test the fence again. And if the pig gets a gap big enough to fit the pig's head through, the pig's ass is going through next. And the pig is getting out, and that's why there's millions and millions of feral pigs in Texas and all over the world, and especially in all over this country, uh, feral pigs. Because if the pig can get out, the pig gets out. And the pig that looks like the farmer's pig in a generation or two will begin to look like the wild pig once again. They will go feral. They will go back to their wild state. They will escape. And the reason they do it is, number one, it's intrinsically piggy. It's in the pig's nature. Okay, But it's because they're willing to test. And it's because they're always thinking, is there a way? Is there a way? And in the book that I'm working on, my 30 Laws of Life book, the, the, the theme across the whole thing is that your mind is a computer. It is a computer that runs on the most advanced self-learning algorithms that we know of. And whether you know it or not, whether you're doing it by intent or not, you are writing code and allowing others to write code into that computer every day. And the, the types of commands that you see in a sci-fi movie where the robot goes, does not compute, does not compute, and it explodes and, and just gives up, that doesn't happen in the human brain. If you give the human brain contradictory commands, it will reference other lines of code, and it will make a determination on one side or the other, and it will go with that. And it will give you what it thinks you're asking for. So if the, the code you're writing is, I am stuck, even if you've picked a time to get out, I am stuck until we pay off our debt and get new jobs and do this thing and get out of school and blah, blah, blah. So I'm stuck until 2021. Your mental computer will just assume that is a hard, fast command, and it will do everything else around that, that root command Computer, we are staying here until at least 2021, which means we may be staying beyond, but we are definitely staying until now. So now the mind is going to reject and ignore anything that alters that root code unless it's intentional. So you, there will be opportunities to move the date up that you won't see, unless you're saying, computer, right now, we're stuck until this date. I don't want that. Find me options. If you give the computer that program, the computer now sees that date as a negative instead of a positive. It's not something that's to be guided. It's something that's to be beaten. You've now given the, the, the computer the objective, win the chess match. Shorten the match. Change the rules. And so you should be asking yourself daily, How do I accelerate getting what I want? And the first thing to do that is you have to give the computer a target. Computer, I want blah, blah, and blah in my life and make it more exciting than blah. 
find me a way to get there as quickly as possible. Be specific. If you were writing actual code in a computer because you wanted the computer to do something, you would be specific. And when you wrote code and you executed the code and you looked at the result, when the computer didn't get where you wanted to go, would you say, well, one day it'll do it? <laughs> Or would you say, oh, bullshit, I need to write some more lines of code. And I need to run the process again. And you would keep doing that and you would work through a punch list and a bug list until you had a beta product. Right? First you'd have an alpha, then you'd have a beta, and then you'd have a mainline program. Yeah? That's how your mind works. So if you want out of Brooklyn, and for everybody else, if you want out of blank, you fill in the words. Unless you are challenging your brain to execute a program, to use self-learning algorithms to execute that command daily, however long you think you will be stuck, It will probably be longer and worse. There will probably be multiple options along the way to accelerate that you will not even see. Because as I've talked about before, that's the true law of attraction. The opportunities are there, whether you observe them or not. The law of attraction does not create the opportunity. The, the real law of attraction, without all the hocus-pocus, without all the bumbo-jumble and nonsense and twaddle, The real law of attraction is tuning the mind to be alert for the opportunity. So when the opportunities inevitably arrive, they can be capitalized on. So anybody that feels this way, let indeed the things we talk about here, the optimism here, be a message of hope that you can get what you want. But don't let them be anything approaching an excuse for not going out and taking them. And be mindful of the code that you allow into your mental computer. We call that your brain. Thank you for making that call, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak on that subject. Let's take another one. This one also on calls, but calling the man, the police. When do we and when don't we? Here we go. Hey, Jack. Aaron from upstate New York here. Question. When is it permissible, or in your opinion, a good idea to get the police involved? Details. I was driving through Manhattan on the FDR which I consider to be the most dangerous highway in New York. There are at least four accidents on it daily. While I was driving down, at one slower point, there was a gentleman panhandling in the middle of the FDR, and I debated whether to call the cops or not. I understand that I understood that if I called the cops, he would lose his freedom because he would go to jail, and that's not right. But on the other hand, you have all these cars that are going to hit him. It's not a matter of if, but when. These cars are going to hit him. What to do? I look forward to hearing your response. Thank you so much for everything you do. Have a great day. Um, so this is one where, like, when you ask the question, is there a big difference between the 3030 and the 357 Magnum? In my head, I said, absolutely. And then you said, in, on game inside 100 yards, and then I added the term, not. There is not much of a difference on the performance of big game hit in the vitals inside 100 yards between the 357 Magnum and the 3030, especially if we're talking about a lever gun. So we're moving up. Yeah, you got the handgun, but I think you're talking about hunting with the rifle. And moving up to 16 to 20-inch barrel length with the 357 Magnum makes the 357 Magnum 
equivalent to the 357 maximum out of a handgun. So the, the 357 maximum pretty much only exists anymore because uh, TC put it in the contender. There was a big problem with the Dan Wesson revolvers um, <clears throat> burning out the throats of, of, the, of the gun uh, and, and causing problems and not having longevity. Well, when they put it in the contender, which is a single shot, it became a favorite of silhouette shooters. Now, the 357 Maximum became kind of famous because when it was released, it was, by the numbers, more powerful than the 44 Magnum, which Dirty Harry taught us was the most powerful handgun in the world, capable of blowing your head clean off. So we've already established that we've moved the performance level up significantly, especially from an energy standpoint. And if you, if you just look at reloading data of what a 158-grain flat point does out of a carbine versus out of a handgun, you can see the numbers bear that out. But let's talk about the old namby-pamby, wimpy little three fifty seven Magnum out of a handgun uh, and using that as a hunting weapon. So it started out as it was like the thirty eight forty four or three fifty seven forty four something like that 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 it was marketed as as a, as a round for law enforcement and it evolved eventually into uh, the current version of the three fifty seven Magnum. Uh, a gentleman that is very well known in gunwriter circles named Elmer Keith thought this was a really keen thing uh, at the time and he worked with another guy I can't remember his name who continued to work on it long after Keith kind of lost interest in it and went off and started to look for bigger bore options, Keith being the big bore guy, right, for, to a counter of Jack O'Connor's uh, uh, small and fast was big and slow. Um, but Keith had a lot to do with early development uh, of the three fifty seven Magnum, and this other gentleman, like I said, that stuck around for the party longer, and to the point of they were basically beefing up thirty eight specials and uh, doing things that the manual said not to, and getting you know three fifty seven performance out of them. And if you look at what was killed by handgun hunters with a three fifty seven Magnum in this country before the mighty forty four Magnum came out, it's pretty much everything. Elk, bear, deer, you name it, people shot it with it, and nobody was like, oh my god, it's so underpowered, I can't believe you did it. Like, Holy crap, it's a 357 Magnum, oh my god, it's a hand cannon. Until the 44 Magnum, it was it. So there is nothing in North America that the 357 Magnum with the right load can't kill. There's things I don't suggest you go trying to kill with it, Grizzly bears and brown bears and polar bears would spring to mind. Um, there are things that maybe it is not the best choice for, like really big moose or really big bull elk, but they've been killed with it. So if you're talking about shooting deer-sized game with a three fifty seven Magnum out of a carbine uh, at 100 yards or less, you are talking about a, a, a what I believe is actually a perfect match. It is out flipping standing. I have a 357 uh, bolt action Ruger that I've killed quite a few deer with now. Uh, the, the, the folks in this audience at my 10 year anniversary last year got me the gun I always hated myself for walking away from an old school Marlin lever gun in 357 without the stupid government imposed cross block safety crap on it. Uh, and I haven't killed anything with that yet, but I've, I've, I've hunted with it, 
I just haven't scored with it. I have no doubt that it will perform. Uh, my wife and, and my friend David and, and, and my friend JR and, and some other folks went in and got me a beautiful uh, 357 Magnum handgun for that celebration as well that is just an amazing gun. I wouldn't hesitate for a minute to take it hunting for deer size game, feral hogs, etc. Um, the 357 is fine for that use. Now, should you swap your 3030 for a 357 Magnum? Only you can make that determination because let's say. The, the 3030 is a fine cartridge out of 200 yards, and the 357 Magnum is not. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying it probably shouldn't. Uh, when we took that little Ruger out, David and I, on a hunting trip, I had told these guys that I could drop a, a four-inch group at over 200 yards with that gun. And they called me a bullshitter, and they never came back. They were some folks that were somehow connected to Landover. But the next day, we decided to see if we could be done. And with a few shots and David acting as a spotter to know how much adjustment, once I knew where to hold, uh, I shot a group that we, we took a sporting clay, and it was inside the diameter of a sporting clay, 218 yards sitting on the side of a hay bale. But it took quite a few shots to be able to figure out that I had to hold about four feet high, and with the wind, I had to hold about two and a half foot uh, to the left of the target. So four foot high and two and a half foot left to dope the wind and drop that round in. And I have no doubt, once we had that dialed in, had some stupid deer that wasn't afraid of gunshots going off, walked out and been exactly where that bale was, that if I'd have dropped that round in, it would have done its job. I have no doubt about that. But being able to hit like that, where a 30-30, you know, shooting like 170 grain flat points and knowing your weapon, it's a 200-yard round, no problem. It's certainly a 150-yard round, and I would call that definitely pushing it for the 357. 100 yards, it's damn flat. Out of a carbine-length barrel, 158 grain, which I think is the perfect round, is like a little damn laser beam from, from, you know, from muzzle to 100 yards. And then it's when it starts to drop like a rock. And it is slamming a 357 Magnum out of a carbine-length barrel at 100 yards has the same muzzle velocity and energy as one at 10 yards does from a handgun. So, yeah, it's it's totally up to the job. Only you can decide if you want to give up the range uh, limitation on that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. Roger in central Kentucky. Uh, I recently had a small pond put in. Um, it was dry one Friday. The following Monday it was completely full because of the runoff and the uh, – the gutter drains that go into it, it's about 30 feet in diameter, about six and a half feet deep. My question, it's got fairly steep sides. The question is, what kind of uh, vegetation should I grow in this pond? I uh, don't want it to be covered over with duckweed, which happens in a lot of ponds in this area. I'd like to be able to grow something I can eat if possible, but uh, something that's attractive you know, it's right in front of my house, so it's going to be very visible. I want something that's going to look nice, and, uh, you know, I may have to put a fountain in there to, to uh, add uh, aeration. You know, it was full on Monday. Tuesday I checked it. It had already had frogs in it. Wednesday I saw a, a turtle in it. Friday I stocked fathead minnows and uh, – and, um, Bluegills in it, about 20, uh, about 40 total. So it's uh, it's off to a good start. But I was just wondering, you know, uh, what what kind of vegetation should I plant there 
to make it as attractive as possible and make something that uh, I might be able to consume. Thanks. Okay, so in this, it's kind of what do you want, and anything that you introduce is going to change the pond ecology and it's going to create something that may not be what you're really looking for. Um, any floating vegetation has the capability of covering most of the surface area of the pond. That's good or bad depending on how you see it. If you want to do a lot of fishing, that can be a pain in the butt, uh, but from a standpoint of preventing excessive evaporation during your summer months, that can be a good thing. Um, duckweed, if you have any significant amount of fish in that pond, it's probably not going to cover it anyway because they're going to eat it. So I wouldn't get too worried about that, but definitely don't go introducing something like duckweed or salvinia if you don't want it. Um, you're probably looking to some sort of emergent vegetation. So emergent vegetation grows in the soil of the pond, but then extends up beyond the pond and, and comes above the waterline. So then what do you want? If you want something you can eat... About the only thing that probably will work really well for you and provide you a significant yield um, without covering your surface is going to be water chestnut. And you can probably find an Asian market or something that sells you know fresh water chestnuts that haven't been peeled or cut yet, and it's as easy as sticking them in the mud. They're only going to grow in so deep of water. Once they get to a point where they can't reliably emerge, they're going to stop uh, growing. They're only going to go so far. And they're not going to emerge that high. They're going to maybe a foot or two at the most, absolute most. And they look like rush. They look like reeds. So they're not going to look out of place. And they're not going to interfere with your ability to do things like fish or what have you. And they are going to give your fry and smaller fish some level of within that shallow water of cover. So I think that would work. Anything else, you're going to get significant surface coverage. So the question then is, do you want it and do you want to control it? So water lily would be a really great idea. Um, but then you probably want to get, uh, they make purpose-built water lily containers. And you're probably going to want to, you know, seasonally pull them out and cull out your rhizomes so that they don't crawl out and get into your pond floor because then they're going to go with six feet of depth Uh, they're not probably going to do really well at six feet, but they will do well at the three-foot depth and in. So then they can kind of spread out from there toward the center, and they may very well be something that could end up covering a lot of surface area to even most of it. Uh, as far as duckweed in that, though, if you were to put in the center of your pond a fountain, what you're going to end up with is an opening where most of your surface vegetation won't go because it doesn't like to get turned over and destroyed. So you got to kind of work with that cattail. You know, cattail will do great on your is it emergent vegetation, but it's going to advance as far as it can it can in, and it it it, it can be a problem. Um, pickerel pickerel rush be the same type of thing. Uh, technically, the little seeds of pickerel rush are edible, but they're probably not worth it. Um, Apomira aquatica, which is water spinach. Um, I don't know whether it would overwinter in your climate or not. Hopefully not. And then you have something that's not going to take over on you. Uh, that's highly edible and incredibly productive. But is it legal? Do you want to risk it? That type of thing. You have to think about that. Um, taro. You could, taro would be great. I don't know that you would eat that much of it. But taro, basically, elephant ears. Look beautiful. They'll grow a little bit into the water. They won't go really deep. Now, you said that the sides are steep. And if they're built like most ponds that I see built in the south and through most of the United States we'd call stock tanks, 
The sides are really way steeper than you want for most vegetation. It's also why it's done. It's why it's done because once you get to a certain depth, these emergent plants don't grow very well. Um, the odds are that sooner or later you're going to end up with some sort of floating uh, to, to, to somewhat subsurface, veg like, like coontail or water. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other one that grows in all the lakes around here. Um, damn, I can't think of it right now. But if you go to your, your, your major lakes, your recreational lakes in the summer, and you find what, what kind of floating vegetation is in there, sooner or later it's probably going to end up in your pond. And then you have to decide how you manage it. Do you mechanically control it, what have you. But in the end, anything you plant is going to occupy as much of the ecosystem as it's capable of. So if you want to do an emergent plant, you need to look at how deep it can go. And then if it has an emergent property, if it's something like a rush or a cattail that comes straight up, it's kind of stopping there. If it's something like a water lily or something like that, it can actually kind of reach out from there and cover more surface area uh, with how, how long it can grow. But it's going to still be limited. And that's where you have to make your determination. But your number one food crop I can think of is going to be water chestnut. And another tuber that would do really well at pond margins and pond edges that's not aquatic at all but would love the wet environment is going to be uh, groundnut, Apis americana. Um, if, especially if you have a side that's more shady than not, And the beauty of uh, Apis Americana, again, ground, American groundnut, is that it doesn't grow very deep. And that's why it needs moist soil. It's not so much that it, that it uses a ton of water. It's that since it, it, it kind of grows laterally out and only a couple inches under the surface and it doesn't put down deep roots, if it's not somewhere that stays naturally moist, it tends to go away and die. That's why, like, shady, moist environments, the sides of uh, streams in the northeast is where it's very common, or it needs irrigation and mulch to stay moist. So that would be another plant that you could look at growing there that's edible. So if you want to get back to me with some more specifics about what you're considering, what you want and you don't want, I'll try to fine-tune my recommendations for you. If anybody has any thoughts on this, uh, comment in the episode or send them to me an email, and we'll put them on a Monday show. Hi, Jack. It is the Tactical Redneck. So you made a comment the other day about right-wing people losing their minds over cutting military spending. Please, 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 let me push that button. I want to push that button. As a veteran with 17 years time in service, most of that time thinking that I was a right-wing Republican, there are lots of ways that you can cut government spending without affecting the temperature and the water at the poles at Four spaces. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll leave you with one. Use it or lose it. What a star-spangled, awesome way to waste ass loads of stolen money. There's a reason that my blood pressure has gone down in the last couple of months, and it has absolutely nothing to do with medication. Anyway, just saying. But thanks for the show, Jack. You're awesome. Until next time, bye. So uh, Tactical Redneck here has uh, mentioned one of the greatest sources of government waste that there is. But he didn't tell you what it means, use it or lose it. It means exactly what it sounds like. So when I was in the Army, I remember the first time that I came up against this, uh, I was a mechanic, and our, our motor sergeant said, well, it's the end of the fiscal year coming up. We need to spend all the money that's available to us. Well, I don't understand. I didn't know anything about 
how this worked at the time. He said, basically, we need to order spare parts. We need to order tools. We need to order anything that we can in any way justify, whether we need it or not. Okay, so why? He said, because if we don't spend all the money in our budget, then we won't get it next year. I said, what? He said, yeah, we got to spend every penny that we've been allocated or we won't get it. And it's worse than that. The whole company has to do this. And the reason I'm bringing it up today is the captain called me to remind me about it, and everybody in the company, every department's doing this. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, supply, commo, uh, avionics, everybody's doing this. Like the helicopter guys are doing what we're doing. They're going to order multiple spare parts they don't need. They're going to just spend every dollar. And then every company in the battalion is going to do this because the battalion CO is on their ass. And then the brigade colonel is on everybody, every battalion to make sure that they're all doing this. And then the whole command is doing this. And the whole country, U.S. Southcom, Panama, is doing this. And every other place in, in to just get on with it. Yes, sergeant. And you go do and figure out how to spend the money. And when you're like, I don't even have any, well, I will help you, and we will find a way to spend all this because that's my ass if I don't. And this is going on in almost every government agency every year everywhere in America. For all it talks about shortages, there might be a shortage for this thing or a shortage for that thing. In most places, there's money that's being dumped right at the end of the fiscal year just preserve that money for next year's budget. Because let's say that a, a small piece of this was some small little pod uh, within a larger agency that they had a budget of $500,000 a year. Okay, And at the end of that year, they still had $50,000. The most money they're going to get allocated next year is $450,000. Because that's all you needed. That's all you needed. That's a, You got by last year on it. Oh, by the way, you're getting $400,000 because there's still $50,000 there. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, So you're literally only getting... So you're not getting four fifty plus the fifty you have to get five hundred total and keep your budget, you're literally going back to, now your budget's $450,000. By the way, you get no gold stars for this. No one gets a promotion for this. No one gets any recognition for this. It's considered bad. So now let's contrast that with the private sector. So if you have a, a large department in a company, you might have a $500,000 annual budget. That's actually not that big of a department, but let's just say that's where you're at. And let's say by the end of the year, you have met all your objectives, everything the company's asked of you, and a little bit more. You brought everything on time and everything under budget, and you don't have 50000 left over in your budget. You have a hundred. Guess what you're getting? You're getting a promotion. You're probably getting a bonus. And if you ask for more money next year because you have new initiatives that you want to go after and you can justify the money, well, they're going to be like, well, give it to them. This guy makes good use of a budget. They're not going to take it away from you. This this process, this this policy, again, use it or lose it, is an attempt at efficiency in an environment where efficiency is punished and not and not generally possible. 
So even if you could be efficient in a government agency, you're not going to be because you'll be punished for it. You won't just be punished by losing money. Your boss will be pissed. Because, see, this is the problem with bureaucrats. And it doesn't matter if they're military bureaucrats or run-of-the-mill bureaucrats. doesn't matter. Once a bureaucrat gets to a certain level, a certain level of promotion, a certain level of authority, a certain level of control, they no longer view the money as the people's money. They view it as their money. It's their money. And their career is based on their ability to spend it all and to grow the size of their department. You judge a private sector employee based on how much profit he produces for the company. I mean, there's other ways they get judged, but in the end, like especially as you move up to the kind of levels we're talking about, if Joe Blow helped the company make $5 million last year and Jim Blow only helped the company make $1 million, well, Joe Blow is going to do better in the company. They appreciate Joe. Joe makes them lots of money. If Joe Blow and Jim Blow are in departments of government, They're, the, the way that they'll be judged on their success will be the more people that they oversee, the more successful they are and the higher they'll be paid. There's a pay scale that's based on tenure and other things, but it's also based on that. Like the higher up a person moves and the more people that work underneath them, the more valued they are, the better the title they have. So there's, there's literally no incentive in government. And this is state. This is local. This is federal. It's all government. There is no incentive in government to make your department smaller or spend less money. Zero. I believe that it is the single easiest thing to change if, if anybody wanted to. Um, and we'll get to why nobody does in a second. But it would be the single easiest change to make in government that would improve the efficiency of government, even in an environment where efficiency is frowned on, would be to eliminate the policy of use it or lose it. And when people say, well, then, you know, then you would end up with people having money, you know, they'd get money they don't need. No. See, you still could have, a, see, what I've said about Joe Blow was Joe has to justify. He has to justify why he wants his budget this year, right? But if he has some, some level of reserves, that's not viewed as a negative. Now, the reserves may build up to a point where they say, okay, Joe doesn't need these reserves anymore. They'd be reallocated within the company. But he's not going to be penalized, Government agencies are literally rewarded for spending every dime they have and for being as big as they possibly can be. And that is why there is no solution in government today to the big problems that we have. Because it's not like if, if the government agency goes out and totally eradicates the problem that it was assigned to eradicate, that it does anybody in that organization any good. What happens Well, now we don't need you anymore. So either we pretend we need you and you start doing things you shouldn't be, and there's a lot of law enforcement in this country at the federal level that's exactly what it is. They actually eliminated the problem they were created to eliminate, or the problem went away on its own usually, or the problem is now much smaller than it ever was, but we can't get rid of that organization. What about all those people in their jobs? And, and this is why. So when people act like you know cutting government is bad, people don't even understand the, the sheer volume of money spent on things that are unnecessary. Not even that they spend too much on the things that they buy. Not even that the operation itself is, is inefficient. 
Not only that there's just general waste, but what we're talking about are billions and billions of dollars being spent on things that are not, not needed to sit on a shelf somewhere because the department head knows if they don't spend that money, they will be punished for it. it, is not, it that's the bigger thing. It's not simply that their budget will be smaller next year. That's not the only problem. They literally will miss out on promotions over this. They will be judged as inefficient by their higher-ups. They will get poor reviews for not spending their money. If they're in the military and you're a motor sergeant and you don't spend all the money, you will have the commander chewing your ass over it. That's, that's our system. That's our system. And that's why when people say, well, how do you for privatization? Because it's more efficient. Because it works better. Because in the private sector, people are rewarded for efficiency. People are rewarded for doing more with less. People are rewarded for actually solving the problems they were set out to solve. In the public sector, which is the government stolen money sector, to be clear, people are rewarded for spending every dollar that they're given and making their departments as large and expensive as possible. I'm sorry, but that's the way that it is. And that's what Tactical meant when he said use it or lose it. Anyway, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, tomorrow we'll be back with an expert counsel show for you for Friday. As you're listening to the show, I want to remind you that, you know, it is you guys that actually make the show possible by supporting us. And you either do that in one of two ways, and many of you do it in both ways. And the first way is by becoming a paid member of the site. If you do that, it's not charity. It's not PBS broadcasting. And I'm not going to send you a handbag that you could get for a dollar as a returnable grocery bag at the store for 50 bucks. I'm not going to do that. No, what I'm going to give you is a login to a private website. You can log into that private website. You'll get content you can't get anywhere else. But the big thing you'll get is almost 80 companies providing you discounts to stuff you're probably going to buy annually anyway. Use those discounts. Get your money back and then some. Many people tell me they make a couple hundred bucks a year by being a member. And then you're supporting us at no real cost. And even if you look at the real cost or the, 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 the direct cost, it's 18 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth two dimes, consider becoming a member. Next up today, um, the other way to support is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. But I want to start out with telling you there might be something you want to buy today that you can't get through T-SPAS. Everything at T-SPAS is on Amazon. And even though Woot.com, W-O-O-T.com, Woot.com um, is uh, affiliated with Amazon, uh, I, I can't sell through them. Okay, So uh, one of the things, though, that you guys, I know a ton of you are interested in is an Excalibur dehydrator. I've talked about those for a long time, and I've always said the Excalibur dehydrator is the gold standard by which all other dehydrators fail to reach. And the, um, the 3900, which is the main one I recommend, is you know upper $200 range. And it's expensive, but it's the best. It's on sale today at Woot.com, that's W-O-O-T.com, for $129.99. I really appreciate those of you that shop on T-SPAS and support me. I'm not gonna, it's on sale on Amazon for like $175.00. I'm not going to send you to Amazon to buy some for 175 bucks. You can get for 130 on Woot. So I just want to let you know that, and it's going out in our daily mail today for everybody as well. I think it's a one-day deal. If it's been on kind of your want list, and eventually you're going to get it, I, I don't see that particular model ever being much less than this. It's a hell of a good time to buy. So even though I do appreciate when you guys shop on T-SPAS, I want to let you know that. Uh, now, 
for TSPAS, I have a, uh, you know, all different items that I've reviewed over the years on Amazon or at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and I always have an item of the day. Today's one I brought around a bunch of times. It's just a great product. It's made by Winchester. It's a 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set, and it's on sale for $16. Bucks. I don't think there's anything on the market that touches it for under $30. I don't think it is a super high-quality, amazing set from like a company like Snap-on or something like that, right? Um, but for what it is, it, you basically will have a bit for everything you could ever need, and it's well-built and well-made. Hundreds and hundreds of them have been bought by the TSP audience. I've never had a single person complain about one yet to me. Uh, again, they're 16 bucks, and they're the kind of thing that, with, their, with them being that cheap and being as versatile as they are, all the Torx bits, the square bits, and, and what have you, um, the Allen key bits, etc., they make sense to like get one and put it in your glove box of your truck. Get one if you have a boat, put it in your boat. Like This is the thing they get multiples of and have them around because inevitably you end up with that one thing that needs to be tightened or turned or loosened or taken out, and it's the one you don't have. And it doesn't have every Torx bit, but it probably has the one that you don't have a bit for right now that you'd be looking at angry. And the first time it bails you out, it paid for itself. And then everything it does from there is great. They make great gifts as well. Again, it's the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. Um, I do have better tools for my you know, my tinkering and my hobby gunsmithing and stuff like that. But this is what's in my range bag, is this kit right here. It's never, I've never not been able to do whatever I needed to do at the range. And it's, it's bailed me out a few times with some minor truck repairs and things like that as well. So check it out. And remember, if it's at tspaz.com, I own it. I bought it, spent my money on it, or I would not ask you to. Today we are uh, continuing our quest to make people my age and older feel older than they are uh, by talking about songs that turn 40 this year. And uh, today's song is by the Commodores. I don't know, at least when you hear it's by the Commodores, it feels old. But this song was released in 1979, 40 years ago, and it's called Sail On. Um, this is like... I don't know, maybe like the most romantic breakup song ever, I guess, or something like the nicest divorce song ever written or something like that. This song is just about a guy who got to a point where he realizes, like, he, he and, and the woman he is with, just it's just not meant to be. The things that he wants in his life versus the things that she wants in her life are so different. The only way he can truly be happy is to walk away. And he does so as gently as possible and I sure wish when marriages, especially marriages involving children uh, had to come to an end that more people would think this way that it's just, it's yeah it's not but the other person's not the enemy the, the other person was someone that you loved enough to commit to at one point so you should respect them enough to walk away with dignity and both sides should be that way I know it doesn't always work, and it ain't always easy. A lot of things are easy to say and not so easy to do. But especially when kids are involved, it's kind of incumbent upon a responsible adult to do it. The other thing I want to talk about with this song is that it is noble to feel that if you've married someone, that you should be with them for the rest of your life. That is the promise that we indeed make. But it is not always meant to be that way. I, I firmly believe that. My wife was married before we met and divorced when we met. And she did everything she could to make their marriage work, and it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, her 
former husband had decided that drugs were the most important thing in his life. Uh, he also had diabetes and wasn't taking care of himself and was destroying his life intentionally with drugs to that point. Basically, he took eight years to commit suicide. And eventually, she looked at him and she looked at our son. And she said, I can't have my son grow up this way. She even went to counseling with her minister, and her minister eventually said, I don't ever tell people to get a divorce, but I'm telling you, you need to get a divorce. And had she not, I don't know what would have happened, but I know it wouldn't have been good, but I know that all of the, the wonderful things that are in both of our lives today wouldn't be there. That there is a time where when people reach a point where they realize we were wrong, And I think you should do everything you can to make sure that you're right about the fact that you were wrong before you get there. But when you do, I think there is times when you need to separate and you need to go on and pursue the things that both of you really want. Because we had a segment about that today, getting what you really want. And it's ironic that that segment involved the beginning of such a relationship and then the song defines the end. But it almost inevitably is the case that the end of one thing is the beginning of another. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough and even if they don't. Sail on down the line by half a mile or so and don't really want to know Maybe once or twice, you see, time after time I tried to, to hold on to what we got, but now you're going. And I don't mind about the things you're gonna say, Lord. I gave all my money and my time. I know it's a shame, but I'm giving you back your name. Guess I'll be on my way. I won't be back to stay. I guess I'll move along. Yeah.